Well, good morning. How you guys doing? Good, good. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up there. We are still in, and I will be saying this for like two more months, we are still in our series, We Are. We are nearing the end of this first section. In this series, we're talking about what does it mean in a deep way? What does it mean when we say that we are a community pursuing the healing and wholeness of Jesus by finding home, finding family, and finding purpose? So we're coming to the end of this first section where we say we are finding home. And today, here's the big idea. We are finding home. We are people who are finding home in Christ if we are people who are inviting neighbors. Now, let me just, uh, let me just get ahead of this and say, I don't mean we are people who are just inviting our neighbors to church, though that might be part of it. You should hear that statement as, I am an inviting neighbor, not I am inviting my neighbor. You see the difference? Make sense? Now, certainly inviting people to church is a wonderful thing to do, but just to head this off at the pass, this is not just a whole sermon about pressuring you to invite all your friends to church. Sound good? All right, cool. All right, we are going to be in Luke chapter 10. Like I said, it's going to be up on the screen. If you don't have your Bible with you, we are reading starting in verse 25. It says this, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Jesus, we are here today for you to be formed by your spirit through your word. Speak to us today. Anything that is my thoughts, my expectations, my ideas, let that be noticed so it can be set aside and rejected. But if there's anything I say that is faithful to you and consistent with your word, let it echo in our hearts that we would become like you, Jesus. Amen. So if you read a novel, or if you watch a show, or you watch a movie, then there are certain cues that the author, or the screenwriter, or the director is giving us to help us understand the characters in the story. 
There are certain cues that we're accustomed to reading that tell us who the unlikely hero is going to be that's going to sneak up at the end of the story and save everyone, that tell us from the very beginning what characters are that we're not supposed to trust, right? There are certain ways that we read a story or that we watch a movie or we watch a show and we see very early, ooh, that's the villain and that's the hero. Or maybe it's cleverly disguised, so we spend the rest of the movie or the rest of the novel looking for the cues that are going to tell us who the villain actually is. Does that make sense? This is part of storytelling. We talked a few weeks ago about how there are four basic elements to story. There is setting, characters, conflict, and resolution. So in almost every story, there's some type of villain because there's some type of conflict, and we are accustomed to interacting with the characters. We love to connect with the hero, especially if it's an unlikely hero, and we love to distance ourselves from the villain. And to illustrate this point, we're going to play a little bit of a game. Sound good? I was a youth pastor for a long time, so this is kind of a youth group game, but it's going to be fun. Sound good? You guys don't sound confident, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, So here's what we're going to do. In just a minute, they're going to be up on the screen pictures of actors. Usually it's just actors or maybe a person playing a specific role. And these are people who tend to play specific roles, who tend to kind of fit the cues that we give them. So here's what I want you to do. When the picture goes up on the screen, I just want you to react and just tell me hero or villain. Sound good? Make sense? All right, first... Villain. Steve Buscemi is never a hero, right? When, he, when you see this guy, he is always like the skeevy sidekick, right? Whenever, his, whenever he is on a show, I just feel uncomfortable, right? He's always, always a villain. Uh, next. Yes, yes. Listen, if there were a movie in which Denzel was the villain, I'd quit watching it. Like, I, I wouldn't even believe it. He is the hero. Absolutely. All right. Next. Villain, villain, yes, Dolores Umbridge. Honestly, I have only seen like one Harry Potter movie in my whole life because I'm a Christian. (laughs) I'm kidding, calm down, calm down, I'm kidding, it's fine. But I don't know anything about this character, but that smile and that little head tilt, huge cue, right? Definite villain vibes. All right, next. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He will never not be the Green Goblin, am I right? Like, just every time I look at him, that's what I see. I watched a movie recently in which he played the hero, the main character, and it took 45 minutes before I got comfortable with him being the main character, the hero of the movie. All right, I think this is the last one. Hero, hero, yeah. Did you know he voiced every voice in Polar Express? Yeah, except for, that's crazy, right? Anyway, he's, all, he's always the hero. Here's the funny thing. We don't know, I don't know anything about any of these people's real lives, right? But the way they get cast on a screen, and you can go ahead and skip past that. Um, is there one more? Okay, perfect, perfect, good. I don't know anything about these characters in real life, but the way that they get depicted on a screen or in a show, tells us something about them, right? Because as a society, there are certain cues that we develop 
to look for that tell us who the hero and who the villain is. This happens in various subcultures. Certain subcultures, certain parts of the world and parts of the country view the hero-villain paradigm differently. But we all learn to read a story and then to make assumptions. In fact, right now, we live in a time where we love the anti-hero. We love the empathetic villain, right? But the ability for a storyteller to be that complicated is because of these types that we expect. Because they tell a story that challenges our expectations. We on the same page? Now, this story that we're reading is a story that transcends scripture. This is a story that has infiltrated our culture and has actually become formative beyond Christian circles. Even outside of the church, if you talk about someone who does a good thing, then you call them often a good Samaritan, right? We've got nonprofits and organizations, and you'll hear this phrase in songs and in books and in all types of things. This has transcended just church. But there are two ways that this hero-villain paradigm, this way that we assume who the good guy and bad guy is, interact with this story. Now, here's the first way. If you grew up in church, probably even if you didn't, then there's a good chance that you and I have learned anytime we read a story about Jesus that if there is a Pharisee, if there's a teacher of the law, if there's a priest or if there's a Levite, then they fall into the villain category. We immediately see them as in opposition to what Jesus is doing. They are the villains. And there's this thing about when we see a villain in the story. Most of us don't see ourselves as the villain in our own story. So we distance ourselves from the villain. And when we identify a villain in the story, the first thing we do is say, that's not me. Either that some of us have a tendency to see ourselves totally as the villain. We are not very good at seeing ourselves as nuanced victim villains that we all are in our story, in the story of the people around us. That's how most of us interact. Now, when Jesus is telling this story, there are some obvious problems. We would read this story, and just like the original hearers, We would hear that the priest and the Levite decided to cross to the other side and not help this guy, and we would think, how could they? Obviously, that's the wrong thing to do, and certainly that's the point Jesus is making. They are doing the wrong thing. We also tend to read this story as if the teacher of the law stood up to prove something, to make a point. And if you were to read commentaries about this story, then some commentaries think that the teacher of the law is being arrogant. Some of them think he's just doing what was common to do when a teacher would come to town, which is a teacher would come teaching new ideas, and the experts in the town would stand up and challenge the ideas. They would put the ideas to the test to make sure they were accurate. So this teacher of the law, there's a good chance he's just doing what experts in the law do, which is make sure that that new teacher knows what he's talking about. But then he asked a follow-up question to justify himself, which, of course, you and I have never done, right? We've never asked a follow-up question to make sure that we're good, that we're not implicated by it. We've never done, gone the extra mile to justify ourselves, right? We don't do that. Only the villains do that, right? So he tells this story about the villains, And these villains in the story cross to the other side. Now, here's what's interesting. In ancient Israel, 
there were laws about cleanliness. Now, these laws were given by God in the Old Testament because people didn't understand germs back then. So these laws would say things like, well, if you get blood on you, if you touch a dead body, these types of things, then you need to be separate from the community for a while, and you need to go through a cleansing process so that you can be made pure again. You can be cleansed or purified, right? So there was actually a law in ancient Israel that one could pull from your mind to say, oh man, you remember how Jesus made it clear that they left him for dead, that he was stripped and beaten on the side of the road? So the priest and Levite walk up and they're doing the wrong thing, but what if they look over and they say, oh man, I don't know if that guy's dead or alive. And I mean, if I'm dead, then I've got to go through this whole process and I can't do my job for a while. And they justify themselves, Right? And there were other laws. Now, throughout the Old Testament, there are laws commanding the love of neighbor. Now, this is not part of the sermon, but this is really important. Sometimes you will hear people say things like, man, God really changed his mind in the New Testament. I heard a comedian recently who said something like, Jesus is cool, but have you met his dad? Because I've read the Old Testament. And I was like, clearly you didn't read the Old Testament. You just read part of it, right? Uh, Some people read the Old Testament and assume, because they only get stuck on the violent stuff, they assume that that's the whole character, which would be kind of like watching Lord of the Rings but sleeping halfway through it and saying, that was a weird movie about an elf, right? right? Those of you who like Lord of the Rings get it, and those of you who don't, don't worry about it. It's not that important. God didn't change his mind when it came to Jesus. God has been kind and gracious and has commanded the love of neighbor and the care for the outcast and the victim throughout the whole story of Scripture. For as long as he has interacted with people, which is from the beginning, he has expected and commanded us to operate with love and kindness. But humans, not just teachers and Pharisees and all of these people we think of as villains, humans justify ourselves. So one of the debates that was common was, who does this love of neighbor law command require me to love? Does it command me to love anybody I interact with? Does it command me to love other people, other citizens of the people of God, other Israelites? Does it command me to love only foreigners who are living in good and right relationship among us? Does it command us to only extend love to fellow Jews who are following the law and haven't brought the calamity on themselves? I don't know if any of that sounds familiar to you, but it sounds really familiar to me because I've had a lot of conversations with people who were in really tough situations in life and I've thought, well, I mean, they kind of brought it on themselves. I mean, they had lots of chances to not. In other words, this would have been a common debate. So the original hearers of this story would have probably thought, man, what a horrible thing for a priest and Levite to do, but they also would have thought, I mean, like, I get it. There's another way that this predicting of hero and villain interacts with this story. And that's the way Jesus uses Samaritan. Now, the most shocking and probably honestly offensive thing that Jesus could have done in this story was to bring in a Samaritan. It is hard for me to overstate to you the hate that existed between ancient Jews and ancient Samaritans. 
the best way that I know to describe it that would help us all understand it would be the Jim Crow South, but if the violence was equally both ways. That would be a pretty good way to understand the hatred between Jews and Samaritans. They were violent against one another at many times. There are stories of desecrating one another's temples in ancient literature. It's commonly believed that if you were to look at a map of ancient Israel, that um, you would... that it kind of arced around Samaria. So if a Jew were to walk from one point to another in Israel, they would actually go around Samaria, adding miles and miles and miles to their journey so that they didn't have to walk through Samaria and interact with a Samaritan. Everybody hearing this story would have heard Samaritan and heard villain. So Jesus makes a very important point here. Because he tells this story in which you cannot argue anything but the Samaritan was the one treating him like a neighbor. The teacher of the law, like us, was looking for a way to say, what type of person do I have to love? Where and who is the boundary of my kindness extended? He wanted to justify himself. He wanted to be able to say, like I have wanted to say so many times, well, I already do that. Or I already did that. Or I love those people well enough. But here's what Jesus says. The command of loving neighbor has nothing to do with who it is. It has to do with who you can extend love to. The command to love neighbor is the command to love anyone within our capacity to extend the kindness and invitation of the kingdom to. It does not stop with people that deserve what they're getting. It does not stop with people who are social or societal enemies. It does not stop with people that we have or types of people, groups of people that we might even have good and justified grievances against. The command to love neighbor is the command to be aware of the needs of everyone that I have the ability to influence and to take responsibility for the needs of those people. This is the command of loving neighbor. Now, I want to be careful here because I've sat through enough sermons like this where we all walk away saying, yes, Jesus commands us to love the poor, and then we all walk away feeling completely overwhelmed because there are too many people in my life and I don't have the ability to take care of all of their needs. So I want to make this very, very clear, as clear as I can. Jesus commands us to do what we can for who we can. Now, that is a really ambiguous line. And if you look for clear black and white lines in Scripture, you don't find nearly as many as you hoped. A lot of it is about us learning to walk in wisdom and to apply the truth with the love of Jesus forming our hearts, right? There's a pastor that I heard a few years ago. He said something that I'll never forget. He said that when, it, when we look at the need of the world around us and we take responsibility for the need of the world around us, it's overwhelming, 
There are thousands that we can't do anything for, that we can't imagine how we can do something about it. But he said, our responsibility is to do for one what we wish we could do for a thousand. Do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. In other words, as followers of Jesus, we are people who notice and are aware of the needs of the world around us and then are intentionally living an invitational life so that we are interacting, we are meeting those needs, spiritual and physical, to the best of our abilities. This is what it means to be people who are finding home in Jesus. And this is important because if my concept of finding home in Jesus stops with my experience of the love of Jesus, then I don't understand what the home that Jesus is creating is. Because the home that Jesus is creating is a home with an open door. Jesus opened the door. All who know him enter, right? If we trust in his work, through through his death and resurrection, then the door is open. For us to really understand what it means that we are welcomed home in Christ, it means we understand deeply what that home is and we live opening the invitation to the people around us, meeting spiritual needs, meeting physical needs, to the best of our ability, being invitational people. And it also means knowing that I have a constant temptation to justify myself and that I will constantly fight the urge to say, yes, I have to love people, but I don't have to love those people. Can I say that one more time? I will constantly face the temptation to justify myself by saying, yeah, I need to love people, but I don't have to love those people. And now obviously we're operating within clear boundaries. There are places that are not safe for someone to be. There are relationships that are not safe to maintain, right? And, and you can love someone and maintain a safe and healthy boundary of distance. I'm not necessarily talking about individuals here, though there is an application here for individuals. What I'm talking about is groups of people. I cannot look at the world around me and say, that type of person is not a type of person God has equipped me to love. Because if the Holy Spirit lives in my heart, then he is equipping me to love anyone that is within my sphere of influence. If the Holy Spirit is in my heart, he is currently equipping me to love anyone within my sphere of influence, right? Yeah, there's one more application of this, uh, this villain hero line that we all create. And we all do it. I do it. And it's that we look at the world around us and we see heroes and villains and villains get what they deserve. And we interpret the world around us saying there are heroes and there are villains. And there are some victims, maybe, that we can help. But the most disconcerting thing that Jesus does is tell us that the the line between hero and villain, the line between victim and villain, runs through all of our hearts. 
that we are all villain victims who needed a hero. And that whatever person or group of people that we would like to say, and listen, I've got a list. When we were in our fold group this morning, I realized that there, there, are, there are people that I just, I don't have. I don't have capacity in my heart right now for mercy. If I can confess that, and you're not going to steal my microphone later. It wouldn't be stealing. You can take it. The line between villain and victim runs through all of our hearts. The offensive thing about the gospel is not his justice. It's the fact that he offers the same mercy to the person that I would never extend mercy to. The offensive thing about the gospel is that me and the person I can't stand might very well be in the same corridor in eternity through the mercy of Jesus because the line between villain and victim runs through all of our hearts. Once again, there are healthy boundaries And there's a process by which we fully accuse, so we fully forgive. There are relationships that are not healthy for us to engage anymore, even after forgiveness. There are people who are perpetrators that are not safe to be around, right? But our posture towards the world around us, this is what this story commands of us, I believe, is that it it asks us, it commands us to quit looking at the world, looking for villains and victims and heroes, and start looking at the world as a group of people wounded and tricked by sin, desperate for a savior that they do not know they need. Extending the same mercy that we would want for ourselves to the people that we don't want mercy for. And that is hard, hard, difficult work in which the Holy Spirit sanctifies our hearts as we surrender to pursue that work. It is hard and it is difficult, but it is the work of Jesus Jesus talks about uh, the straight and narrow way, there being a wide gate. And oftentimes we think that that, that means partying. The, the broad, curvy road is partying and looking at things on the internet and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure that there's a lot of that stuff on the wide road. But I think the reason why the straight and narrow is straight and narrow is because it's really hard to learn to extend mercy to those of us that we don't think deserve it. It's really hard to expect the forgiveness of Jesus for ourselves and then extend it to those around us who don't deserve it. It is a hard and difficult way, but it is a beautiful, beautiful way. And once again, when we are people finding home, I I, I just want to ask you as we close, I want to ask you to put on your, your, your vision glasses for a minute. That doesn't exist. I just made it up, but... Imagine what it would be like if just a group of Christians this size, if we all said, no, this world is not about villains and vengeance. This world is about mercy and seeing the woundedness in everyone that we wish we could wound. Seeing the hurt that already exists in the people who have hurt us. Can you imagine what a world would look like if all of those of us who live under the forgiveness of Jesus because we have claimed his name could extend that same mercy to the people around us? Can you imagine what a world like that would look like? I think that's what Jesus is asking us to imagine. That's why if we are to be people who are finding home in Jesus, we have to be people who are 
noticing the spiritual and physical needs of the people within our circles of influence. Yes, that might mean inviting someone to church. We have lived in a world, (laughs) we live in kind of the millennial world where we've reacted to the 1990s evangelicalism where we pretended that the only thing anybody ever needed was to come to Sunday school and that would fix everything and it didn't. And But we've reacted so far the other way that we have often said, well, just just give people food and that's all that matters. Just meet physical needs and that's all that matters. The reality is every single human on earth has both spiritual and physical needs. They need their physical needs met and they also need a spiritual community and family that they can walk through life with just like you do. So inviting people to church is a wonderful way to help meet someone's needs. But also the reality is most people don't want to go to your church if they've never been to your house. Can I say that one more time? Most people don't want to go to your church if they've never been to your house. Most people don't want to come to church with you if they've never been to coffee with you. Most people don't want to hear about the one who saved you if you don't notice that their life feels like it's in shambles. And when we put down the villain-hero dividing line that we all hold up to evaluate the people around us, and then we start to notice when that coworker starts to act differently and be attuned and empathetic and start to pray for them and then ask questions. And we start to notice our neighbors. And rather than saying, oh man, I've heard a lot of argument going on there. I wish they'd keep it down. Instead saying, I wonder what's going on over there. I wonder if I can help. Right? When we change our posture to move with empathy to the people around us, then it opens a door because we are showing mercy for us to say, hey, you've got physical needs and spiritual needs. I walk through all of this stuff with a community. Why don't you walk through it with this community with me? Do you see what I mean? When we become people who put down the victim, villain, hero, dividing line and rather see all of us as people who are wounded and broken, in need of mercy and choose to step in empathy and kindness to those people in need, then we are fully finding home because we understand the home that we have in Christ is a home with an open door. Amen? As we close in worship today, I want to invite you to consider who the person or group of people was that you were really hoping I wasn't going to say anything about. And then ask the Holy Spirit what it would look like for you to show them mercy. Jesus, we love you. You love us first. We love you because you first loved us. Jesus, there are people that I do not particularly want to extend mercy to because honestly I do not think that they deserve it. But Jesus, I know that You're not really asking me whether I think they deserve it or not. You're saying that you love them. And you are asking me to take upon myself your name and your home and show hospitality and love and invitation. So God, I ask that you would make me an inviting neighbor who notices and knows the spiritual and physical needs of the people around me and quits wielding around the weapon of who I think deserves it and who doesn't. And I ask that we, as we endeavor to be a people finding home in Jesus, 
that we would be people who keep the door wide open and notice the needs of the world around us and invite, share what we have, meet those needs spiritually and physically however we can. We love you, Jesus. Amen.